1: of meaningful sport. So welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Dr. Colin Cronin from Liverpool John Moores University. In the first part of our conversation we started to explore the concept of care in sport coaching and discuss the new projects that Colm has been working on, the different things developing in this area in the last two years. And we also had a previous conversation in the podcast almost two years ago where loads of the kind of groundwork around this was also laid. So I do recommend checking out the first part as well as the older episode we have. And so in the second part we will then jump right back on. We explored Colin's new project around care for coaches. So previous work has more looked at care for athletes. And we started discussing some of the problems, the challenges of coaches' work and why there might be problems with coaches' well-being and issues of retention and so forth and so welcome back to the podcast column and shall we just jump really right back to it so you discussed you've done empirical work around care for coaches you mentioned some surveys and and gathering information in terms of what are the needs of coaches and who are the people who might care for for coaches and what are the situations when the needs are not met so Shall we just kind of jump into the findings and you can share what you've discovered in this area?
0: Yeah, so Nora, this project is, um, it's still underway. So uh, everything I say here needs to be caveated, uh, you know, analysis continues and work continues on this. um, And in time, hopefully we'll publish these in in, in a more official format. But at this stage... um, you know, myself and my colleagues, we've been we've been looking at the data just for kind of insights, initial uh, thoughts, really, and uh, and some of the things we've noticed uh, really are around the levels of care. So that was kind of our initial uh, question here: is how well cared for do coaches feel? And and on that, um, we've looked at that, and we've looked at with different demographics involved. Uh, but in general, what we found is that coaches across a variety of domains so so uk coaching who are our partners on this they've got a broad view of coaching which isn't just traditional sports not just high performance it's also coaching children maybe coaching in schools which is very common in the uk but also coaching out in communities coaching for health uh, coaching for maybe uh, positive social outcomes such as community cohesion so when we've looked across a broad range of coaches what we found is that the coaches. Very few of them felt really well cared for. What was also interesting is that very few of them also felt that there was a complete absence of care. So it was somewhere in the middle there. It wasn't at either extreme uh, in general. Uh, And I think that's really interesting um, because, as I said, I've been researching care. I've been worried about these coaches looking at burnout. So I was expecting it to actually be worse. But then on the flip side, if we look at the other side of it, we think, well, actually, these are the people out there caring for our athletes. These are the workforce that we need to provide positive experiences. And not very many of them feel well cared for. So it's not as bad as I was expecting because I was immersed in that literature. But then also, it's not as good as we'd hope this to be. If we want to develop a sustainable, high-skilled workforce that can help people flourish across all these domains, actually, these people at the moment don't really feel very cared for at all. So it's an area that needs work, but it doesn't mean that there's no care at all out there.
1: Yeah, so this gives us a good starting point. And I know it's work in progress. You're working on it and looking into it in more detail. I wonder if you can already distinguish some differences and different dynamics when you look at the more amateur grassroots sport. And did you then have coaches who also work in more talent development or more high performance environments? Because you would assume that the dynamics, the challenges and needs, they might be a bit different if you look at the different contexts.
0: Yes, absolutely. So in terms of how well cared for, we didn't notice any domain uh, differences between the grassroots and the high performance. Uh, but in terms of what the needs are, we did see some differences. So um, let me just uh, give you an overall impression there. So, you know, we, what we had really was we had a diverse group of Of needs. So, you know, we had a diverse group of coaches, uh, gender, ethnicity, race, religion, uh, ability, disability, sport, for instance. And we also had a diverse group of needs. When we distilled those needs down, we could kind of almost categorize them in two really broad areas. So the first one was um, almost an emotional, effective need. So coaches often talked about. Uh, wanting somebody to listen, uh, wanted somebody to acknowledge the work that they were doing, to recognize the work that they're putting in, to feel valued. So we had this kind of emotional uh, uh, support that they needed. On the other side, we also had really pragmatic Uh, Needs And that's probably where those differences manifested more then. So these were really practical things. So often, you know, the volunteer grassroots coach would say something like, I need somebody who can cover a session for me maybe once a month, so I can go to parents evening for my child, or or I can um do something personal with my family that I uh, that uh, but at the moment I've got a clash and I'm missing out on these important things in my family because I've got nobody who can cover my session so there's a pragmatic uh, need there Uh, Other people will talk about, well, I'm a developing coach. I'm on my way. I'm trying to develop towards a high-performance sustainable. I need support to get me on the next uh, coach education course. It costs X a month, um, and I need I need financial support. Now, the grassroots coach might not have needed that, but the coach who's on the development pathway might have needed that. Sometimes the coaches, again, you know, I'm thinking here, high performance coaches would say something like, well, I've got time off, but I've got time off on a Monday morning. Because actually, all day Saturday and all day Sunday, I'm working and I've got Monday morning off. And actually, there's nothing to do. None of my family are around. So what do I do on a Monday morning? I open up the laptop anyway.
1: Yep. Mm -hmm.
0: so they would say well actually we need to look at our schedule we need to look at our season and we need to build in some actual proper time off for us as coaches and our wider staff and so so the need the need could be very different other coaches talked about you know i need help with practice design i need somebody to help me design some practices and drills uh, for instance so, and again that's not surprising these are coaches out there doing a practical activity a practical you know so they need some pragmatic support but what that pragmatic support was was different depending on where they were in the domain and their career um so we kind of have this broad pragmatic category manifesting very differently depending on their context
1: I wonder if in your work these developments around professionalisation of sport coaching do they come out at all, because I think this is maybe one dimension is this need for recognition for the work you do. And when I did some work interviewing coaches when I was in Liverpool, John Morse as well some years ago, and so the coaches were very divided in terms of some would say that we want this to become more professional because then coaches get more recognition for their work, that they actually have skills and competencies And they are, in that sense, recognized uh, as professionals in what they do. Whereas the others felt quite strongly about amateurism, that it's what they want to do as a community service, and they want to give back to sport. And they didn't see this professionalization necessarily being the right pathway. Also in the sense that then the parents and whoever are more like the clients Or the consumers of the service and this then brings them again more pressure and more demands that you're getting paid. So we expect that this needs to be this and that much and bringing you more work and more pressure. So I wonder if this dynamic plays a role in in what you see.
0: Yeah, I, I think there is an element here, but we didn't ask the coaches about professionalization. So we did a survey of 400 coaches. We've interviewed um, coaches, again, from different domains on top of that to try to get more in-depth experiences. Uh, we didn't ask them about professionalization as an explicit topic. But I do think it's, there's an undercurrent uh, of the professionalization of coaching or, or the lack of, of, of professionalization. And now I'm making sense here on the call. So hopefully the, um, you know, the listeners will, you know, show some sympathy to me here because I'm, I'm beginning to make sense of your topic here. Um, and, when I think about some of the data, where I saw professionalization being an issue was definitely across all domains, those coaches wanted to be valued and acknowledged. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean in financial terms that might be having somebody come along and say you're doing a great job every week or uh, every now and then. So there was definitely a need to have value uh, uh, a kind of a, an appreciation for the work that i'm doing i i need somebody to acknowledge it i feel isolated on my own doing my thing and nobody's really valuing it so that was definitely there uh, whether that's in an amateur or a paid professional a sense there was in either case there was a need to be valued and uh, and, and recognized uh, there the other place where I think the professionalization agenda, and again, your listeners are broader in the UK. So, you know, for a bit of context here, probably about 15 years ago, there was a bit of a movement in the UK to develop professionalization skills or coaching as a profession. Uh, there was attempts to develop a professional body of knowledge. There was attempts to develop professional education. Personally, I feel that has stalled post London 2012 for various reasons. But I feel that agenda has, has maybe not progressed as, it, it, you know, it was envisaged, envisaged in the uh, early to mid-naughties, um, basically. And I think I saw that in some of the coaches' interviews. So one of the coaches talked to me about, you know, uh, coaching in a sport which uh, has a professional league but has, has one league of a small number of, of teams. And underneath that is four or five layers of amateur coaching. So when that coach lost their job as the professional coach, they felt that was done in an unprofessional way for a start. But they also had no league to drop down into other than amateur. So in terms of their career, they felt that, hang on, I've gone from coaching at the top level, paid that's my job security, that's my family security, and now all of a sudden, uh, I'm struggling to find any paid coaching. And and the the only paid coaching they found then was coaching almost in primary schools doing PE lessons or after school or lunchtime clubs. So you've got a coach who's gone from coaching full-time professional athletes to now running lunchtime clubs. Uh, in a very different domain, a very different type of coaching. They've gone from analyzing performances and writing S&C programs and they felt that there was a a chasm in in the professionalization and they felt that they were isolated, that they were on their own and there was a, a big drop from where they were. So that does make me think about where are we as a profession that one of our few professional coaches would experience that. And I suppose there's two things that come to mind there. The first thing is I want to be clear. I'm not trying to denigrate coaching in primary schools. So actually that's really valuable, really hard, and you have to be really skilled. I just feel it's a different domain. It's a, it's a jump from one domain to the other uh, because there wasn't anything in their domain that that coach could do once they lost their professional job. They had to jump into a different place for coaching. The other thing I want to be related to that is lots of coaches really felt the need for some sort of support network for them. Whether, you know, one coach talked about a union of coaches and the need for a union and how a union might help coaches who lost their job or they might help them support coaches. Lots of other coaches talked about developing their own professional network. So they would have other coaches that they trusted, maybe mentors that they trusted. Generally, people inside the sport and that in those tough times when they were struggling, maybe after you know uh, poor performances at competition or losing competition or losing a job, they would reach out to their own network that they've cultivated themselves. And again, that was interesting to me because. It was a network that they had cultivated. It wasn't a network that was inherent within their organization. So they didn't really feel there was that much support within their organization. They had their own support network outside of that, that they had built around them, almost like viewing themselves as almost like a sole trader, but with some support around themselves. Um, So again, that does make me think and reflect and, and question how much progress have we made as a profession If lots of coaches feel that they need to develop these ad hoc informal networks to support them because they don't feel their professional experiences will be supportive. And again, some coaches saying, actually, we need a coaches union and we need some support along those lines.
1: Yeah. So following up, and you mentioned earlier that you were also charting who are the people who care for coaches, and you started answering this question as well. And so it sounds to me that mostly the coaches need to be quite resourceful, quite self-organized, and they have to be kind of navigating these networks themselves, finding the right people who they can trust. And so the organizations haven't haven't really maybe got so far with that yet, or I don't know whether it's improving or declining or staying the same as it was. But so what are your more practical messages, then what can the sport organizations do better if we think of care for coaches, should there be people who have it as a part of their job in the same way as coaches now are expected to care for athletes? And so how do you see this developing further in the more organizational and the structural level in terms of improving the situation for uh, care for coaches?
0: Yeah. And again, there, there are domain-specific and context-specific factors at play here. But what was interesting for me was that the, and this is with my co-authors as well as well involved with this. Um, one of the co-authors pointed out uh, that there was almost an experiential element. To this. So often coaches, for instance, might realize that actually I'm experiencing depressive symptoms, for instance. So once they've experienced that or or, uh, once they've experienced that, some coaches would almost uh, learn uh, to self care. Now, there's a danger when I say self care here that somebody thinks that the coaches realize this themselves. Often it might have been a family member pointing out. You know, you need to look after yourself or watch out or you're not quite your same here and they might go to a GP. But coaches often talked about, you know, an element of self-care in terms of exercise, in terms of diet, in terms of nutrition. Again, you think of the, the coach's lifestyle, for instance, you know, coaches who are coaching in community settings. Uh, you know, they might be coaching in three different schools during the day in a youth club in the evening, you know, or they might be coaching in two different businesses trying to do, you know, health physical activity work during the day. And, and, and you know, they're driving from one business to the other. So what do they do? They grab fast food or take away for lunch or they skip lunch and they have fast food on the way home or, or, or in between sessions. So again, you know, there's some basics there. Uh, so as a starting point, I would be thinking, right, okay. Do our coaches know these basics? Do we have people in place to support coaches with these basics like we expect the coach to do for athletes? Uh, One of the coaches interviewed did a fantastic job explaining this in a high-performance setting. Uh, You know, they they went away to a a warm-weather training camp And there was a big emphasis on the athletes taking hydration. Uh, They were monitoring the athletes' behavior. So, you know, how many times did they have, a, you know, a water bottle with them at at team meetings? You know, had they forgotten their water bottle? Were they sipping their water bottle? They asked the athletes to self-report. Uh, and of course they asked the coach to do this and you know day one who was bottom of the ratings for looking after their own hydration it was the coach who was going around telling everybody else to hydrate wasn't actually taking the time to do it themselves so just like we have athlete welfare officers and child protection do we have somebody in that organization uh, who is looking out for the welfare of the coach and again there's a moral re- et- moral ethical justification for this we're asking this person to take on this emotional labor and do it well they're a person let's support them there's also a performance reason that coach is going to be a better coach on the training camp if they are hydrated so again there's a moral but there's also a performance rationale for this the community coach is going to be a better coach in the session let's say they're doing a session in the evening at a university they've been at two businesses before that have they just you know grabbed some a bar of chocolate on the way have they actually been able to have something healthy something fulfilling before to eat before they go to that session so there's a moral and a performance element for this
1: yeah and a clear sustainability dimension if we think of the sustainability of both the volunteer sport as well as the more performance sport system if the people who are working there amateur coaches professional coaches if this is coming at the big cost on their well-being and work-life balance and less people will want to do that, then you all already mentioned the problems in terms of retention of coaches. So we clearly do have a problem if loads of coaches find that this is not sustainable for me and they will leave, then our whole sports system can't continue. Uh,
0: And this is fascinating for me because Uh, I look at sports in particular, which are developing. They may not have a lot of experienced coaches within their system, and they may not have a lot of financial resources to keep replacing coaches and keep investing in training coaches and education coaching. And so I, I, I look at this from a moral perspective. It's the right thing to do is to care for these coaches. But also from a financial and a productivity perspective, if we're developing sport and we have a small number of coaches, I want to make sure they stay in the sport. I want to make sure they thrive and they flourish. I don't want to burn them out and have them replaced after 18 months because in those developing sports, there's probably not that many coaches to begin with and there's not that many coaches willing to invest in uh, in their training, their education and upskill themselves. So why are we not looking after those that are doing that? Uh, and again, that then comes to, and that phrase "looking after" came up a lot in interviews and 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 in qualitative survey data. And I think there's something in that. Who is looking? And I literally mean looking, uh, observing. Who is looking after the coach? Uh, so my advice would be for organisations to have a look inside and say, right, well, whose role is this to look after the coach and observe them and support them, create a dialogue, um, our systems in place that support this uh, enable a coach to flourish and to, 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 to do that uh, self-care but also from the point of a coach, I would then challenge coaches to say, right, well, who have you developed to look after you so that if you have a bad experience, such as losing your job or experience a burnout or a bad loss, lot, you know, a competitive loss was a big thing. Coaches would lose a game on a Tuesday. And they'd almost feel like it's a fr- an affront to their identity. They have lost to another coach. Does that mean I'm bad? And there was a bit of masculinity tied up in this often as well. That you know, am I, you know, uh, am I a successful person if I'm losing on a Tuesday every week? So that might be Wednesday, Thursday. You know, some coaches described, uh, you know, being isolated, locking themselves away, being grumpy at home, maladaptive coping, overeating, drinking alcohol, things like that on a on a Thursday, Friday, because they lost on a Wednesday, for instance. Who have you got within your system that you can trust, you can go to, you can discuss that and you can make sense of that loss or you can make sense of that experience and you can plan a healthy and a more productive way forward rather than being isolated. So I would challenge coaches to to look at their own systems, but I would also challenge organizations to look at that. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know if you can make sense of that. Um because we, I literally are making sense of it now, with you hear. So I don't know if you've got any thoughts on what we said there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very clear that we have need for both for the practical, like putting these support systems in place. Is it partly to incorporate new elements in coach education as well? But then also this research that we need to understand who are the coaches, who are more likely to have these challenges, What are the preventive measures we could have? And then to make sure that we also then when these troubles start to arise, that the coaches do have somewhere to go and people in the organizations and they have their own support networks and uh, self-care practices as a part of this whole, whole big puzzle that you need to build around it. Yeah, Yeah,
0: I'm very excited for future research, which, as you say, almost action research or on the ground ethnographic research or where we try to put some of these things in place and we see how Mm -hmm. these manifest. I'm also there reminded uh, from you, thanks for your comment, you reminded me of one of the coach who, as I said, experienced uh, some challenging times, then went and approached the employer and is now an advocate for other coaches within this organization so that coach has been through some tough times got some support is in a better place now but is now mindful and looking out for and looking after other coaches who might come there so I think there is an experiential and a contextual factor in this um
1: mentoring network or mentoring relationships and these kind of things
0: and, and lots yeah lots of coaches reference having a coach mentor and i think the reason why they like the coach mentor was they felt that the mentor would at least understand what it's like to be a coach yeah. what it, you know as i said that loss for instance on a tuesday night or rush into a session on a on a thursday because you're doing five sessions in a day for instance as a community coach they felt that a mentor would understand that that context, that system, and they would uh, know where they're coming from. Um, but they'd also felt the mentor of them might be able to guide and support, not necessarily direct, but guide and support. So a coach mentor was a, a key source of support, almost to the point, Nora, that I'm wondering if we should be allowed coach without a coach mentor because I'm not sure it's a sustainable activity without. You know, and again, should we even be allowed coach? And these are just musings. I hope the listeners don't think that these are fully formed decisions. This is a work in progress. We, as as a team, we are working this, but you know, again, you know, it, it, should we be allowed to coach a, a grassroots sport without a couple of assistant coaches in play? Because if if there is not a couple of assistants there to support. Then all that will happen is three months down the line, I'm going to be missing family and I'm going to be missing these events. I've got nobody to cover my session, nobody to help me with balls, tips and equipment. So I either burn out, I get grumpy and give a bad experience to the grassroots children who are now being introduced to a sport, for instance. Or I, you know, or I leave and say, actually, you know what, I've done my bit, I've done three months, and now the children have got no club to play for. So I do think about this from a sustainability and an ethical point of view, that actually we might need to start looking at the systems around coaches and saying, actually, are these going to allow sustainable coaching? Uh, For the betterment of the coaches, but also for the betterment of the athletes. Do we want athletes, clubs and coaches leaving? I'm not sure we do. Not if we want a a genuine, authentic coach-athlete relationship.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And clearly you already have these practical ideas, the things we could put in place that would likely improve the situation with mentoring, with these support networks, assistant coaches, loads of the things that could be done in practice that would that would most likely help. But yeah. we haven't done mm-hmm. the
0: research on it yet. So, right. so These are it initial prob- ideas. It's, these are initial ideas, and they probably sound really good and really simple and really effective. But we all know it's going to be messy in context. There'll be politics and resources and personalities and uh, different ambitions. So that's why I think we do need to move towards that, maybe action research or ethnographic research Um, that rich applied research um, to see how does this work in practice. Um, And again, I caveat everything what I say here is we've got to look at the type of research we have at the moment, the work that we need to move towards and do, and it's a work in progress. What I'm trying to get here, Nora, is an invite back in two years for part three.
1: (laughs) You will most certainly get that. And yes, that's important to qualify that in the podcast we are also exploring what would be the next directions and what are the ideas that you are now playing with. And obviously, this research is not yet out and this needs to be looked at in more detail before saying that this or that should be done. So absolutely, we'll do a part three. Uh, Before we finish up, when we started in the first part, you discussed two different projects coming coming along and the care for coaching we now discussed extensively the other one is the special issue, which is focusing more on athletes' perspectives on care. And so this is in Sport Coaching Review. That's the journal. And so just share a few words in terms of what the listeners can find from there. I will link, uh, link this in the show notes so it's uh, easy to go and take a look. So just share what, what the special issue has in it and why it's interesting to go and uh, read a few papers from there.
0: Yeah, so the special issue is not out yet, but uh, six papers have been published online. So the uh, quite a few of the papers are there. I've been very naughty, and my editorial is the last part to be done, so that's why it's not out yet, and I need to get that done. Um, but the special issue really kind of was challenging this idea that coaching is a relationship, but we've only got... The perspective of the coaches so far. So this is the same. Well, okay, let's question this perspective and also let's get the perspective of the athletes. So within that special issue, uh, and this is in sports coaching review, it's a qualitative sports uh, coaching journal, uh, publishes stuff from psychology, sociology, different disciplines, but tends to be qualitative and critical, focused on coaching. One of the first papers there was by Brian Geraghty uh, out of Denver in the United States, and Brian really questioned the literature that we have on coaching so far, which is coaches saying, this is how I care for athletes. He really questioned, well, is that actually care for athletes? Or is this only care for athletes within the prevailing discourse? So if I give an example for, you know, U.S. college athletes again, for instance, coaches would say earlier on, for example, I would do a family-style meal on a Friday night for our team. Well, Brian would question, well, yeah, but is that the main need of these athletes? Or actually, you know, should they be paid for their amateur basketball or football performances that generates a huge amount of monies for the university so are you really only caring for them within the accepted discourse or the accepted practices of the system are you really actually willing to challenge the system uh, and Brian did that by looking at his own work and his own research and shining the light on himself a little bit and saying actually When I reported what these coaches said were coaching, should I have been more critical uh, or caring, should I have been more critical of care? And that really starts off the special issue to really question, well, what is care? And then on top of that, we have uh, five papers on the athlete's perspectives. And these are different athletes. So there's rugby athletes in there. There's female footballers in, in there. And these are narratives, they're rich, and it's quite interesting, again, how care can be situational-specific, context-specific. I'll give you an example, rugby athletes, for instance, very focused on concussion and health and safety. Uh, Female footballers, less focused on concussion, but they were very concerned about medical support in terms of massage and who was doing that and who's who, who was providing that and that raised issues around what's appropriate touch uh, as well and question that so so there's four or five articles in there that really provide different perspectives on what is care and make us question uh, you know the accepted discourse on, on care and um, so that's in the special issue and I'd encourage people to you know have a look on sports coaching review go through them they're they're available online. Uh, Sports Culture Review has a Twitter account as well. So have a look for that and have a look at articles on there that are really questioning care. And again, that probably sets us up with the Care for Coaches project, really moving uh, away from an idea that care is simple and really moving towards the idea that care is a relationship, but these relationships happen within a wider context. And these wider contexts do influence how people conceive of care within that relationship. Uh, and that's why I think we need to get into those messy contexts and see what are those wider influences that are on those caring relationships. So theoretically, seeing those care as a relationship, but not just an isolated sterile relationship it's within a uh, uh, you know a complex system and uh, uh dynamic context which can be very different across sports and domains and, and things like that
1: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and so interesting when you take a discursive perspective that what are the things that are culturally thought to be caring activities and what are not and then you can start to question the discourse as well. So yeah, so fascinating. I really look forward to reading.
0: And touch, I think in particular uh, my colleague at uh, John Moore's uh, Colin Lewis's letter paper on this. I think touch is a really good example of how how that can be culturally different. Uh I think Marie Oman in Sweden has done some work on this as well. And uh yeah, so, you know, that's maybe an example of how, you know, uh, touch uh, can be very situational, uh, specific and how that's received. And again, Colin's looking to pursue that. So these papers are making us question this. And then there's a need to go in and see how does this happen in practice and make more
1: sense of it. Yeah. Thanks so much for the conversation. I think we are clearly doing another one in a couple of years when we have a bit more findings also from your ongoing work.
0: Thanks for having me, Nora. Appreciate it as always.
1: Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in this show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, So be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.